Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It's great to have you here. Uh, it is Sunday, March 7th, 2010, and we are starting on Proverbs chapter 12, verse 12. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 12, and the verse reads, A wicked person desires the prey of evildoers, but the root of the righteous will yield or provide. A wicked person desires the prey of evildoers, but the root of the righteous will provide. So as we generally do, we'll start with questions, and we're asking questions about the verse itself and what questions we might want to answer in order to be able to understand what it is that King Solomon is trying to teach us in this verse. A wicked person desires the prey of evildoers, but the root of the righteous will provide. So what kind of questions might we want to ask? Naomi, any ideas? Or anyone there who might be with you? Okay, good. What's the relationship between wicked and evildoers? Seems like they sound about the same. That's good. Uh, I would add uh, some other possibility or some other questions to that list. When, it, when the verse talks about the prey of evildoers, what does that mean? And what is it that a, why does a wicked person desire that? Um, and then the second half talks about the root of the righteous. Uh, so what does that mean? What's the root of the righteous? Uh, and what is it that the root of the righteous actually provides? Because the second half says the root of the righteous will yield or provide. So what is it that it's actually providing? Okay, and uh, you suggested the prey of evildoers is the spoils of evil. Okay, that could be. So let's take a look at that first half. Note that the first half doesn't talk about the results of evildoers or the treasure of evildoers, but King Solomon chose to use the word prey. Now prey generally means an animal that is hunted or killed by another for food. Or if we put it in human terms, it could mean a person uh, that is easily injured or taken advantage of, or something that's easily injured or taken advantage of. And since the verse doesn't seem to be talking about hunting animals, per se, I'll suggest that the prey of evildoers is another person or something that the wicked person can easily take advantage of. For example, uh, Widows and orphans might be considered uh, the prey of evildoers because they often have no one to protect them. Okay, And Naomi, you've asked, uh, what is spoils? Not sure if you have a translation that's different from mine. Uh, is it possible that your translation reads, a wicked person desires the spoils of evildoers? And you're wondering what the use of that... Uh, term is? Okay, good. Yes, generally speaking, spoils means what the conqueror gets. So we talk sometimes about the spoils of war. That would be the, um, uh, the land and the riches that a person who wins in a war uh, actually is, is able to, uh, to take over. So, in this case, I think the words probably prey and, and spoils connote something very similar. So, I want to suggest that, uh, again, that the prey or the spoils of evildoers is, is a person that the uh, evildoer can easily take advantage of, like widows and orphans, again, because often they have no one to protect them. So. Why does a wicked person desire that? And let me stop and you've said 
uh, riots and an anarchy situation. I need a little more information. I'm not sure if you're asking a question there. Can you give me a little more there? Ah, sharing the evil spoils. Yeah, that to me, that would be different than a riot or an anarchy situation. Uh, anarchy is kind of a, a different thing in that there's absolutely no order at all. Uh, in a situation of, of prey, if you think of a wolf that goes and hunts down uh, another animal for prey, uh, that's a little different than just a totally chaotic uh, situation. Uh, now, a wicked person might desire that because they want to share evil spoils, I'll suggest that the wicked person is desiring that prey because it allows him to get what he wants in a way that is consistent with his emotional desires. For example, rather than work for something and save money so he can buy it, which is a rational way of going about getting something, the wicked person wants his desire fulfilled immediately because remember it's emotional and the emotions want gratification immediately in the, in the very short term. And the wicked person wants that desire fulfilled without resistance. So, for example, if a wicked person wants money, so, and he, he's going to scheme to get it, who's he going to scheme to get it from? Well, a powerful, you know, if he had to choose, would he choose to try to scheme and get it from a powerful businessman who has lots of savvy and, and smarts and resources? or a widow who has no one to watch out for her and defend her. So recall that we've discussed that the wicked don't take a world view of humanity. They're very, very self-centered. They're focused on fulfilling their desires, so they're going to take the expedient path to getting what they want as quickly as possible. So I'll suggest they will scheme against someone who they perceive to be weak in order to be able to get what they want with as little resistance as possible. So the wicked person desires the prey of evildoers, essentially the results of, of the kill that an evildoer will uh, perpetrate. Now, let me add an additional uh, idea, an approach that uh, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, shared. He said, for some people, there's a certain fantasy in doing something evil, even when the person sees the, that a legitimate approach would be better. So it's a powerful fantasy. So that also is another possibility of what the verse could be telling us, that the wicked person has this fantasy to want uh, to do evil things, even when it seems like a legitimate approach uh, might be better. Now, the second half, well, let's talk about, let's, uh, uh, let's take a look at the second half. But before we do, let me ask a question. And it's one that that's, well, we've, has come up before for us, and that is, if we're just looking at the first half, why is King Solomon telling us this? I mean, it seems like it's fairly obvious. The wicked desire the prey of the wicked. Well, of course, what else would they desire? I mean, that's indicative of the fact that they're wicked. Is there some unique information that King Solomon is telling us in this? So let's hold that question and just set it aside, and let's take a look at the second half and see if we get a clue. The second half of the verse says that the root of the righteous will provide or yield, which just begs the question, provide what? I mean, what does the root of the righteous actually provide? And I'm not sure that the verse is referring to a specific thing. It may be referring to whatever it is that the righteous need. It could be that the verse is referring specifically to sustenance in one form or another. Uh, that could be physical sustenance like food, or 
Uh, it could be wisdom and insight and ideas that help perfect the righteous person's soul or, or cause him to grow. Uh, but somehow, the root of the righteous is providing it. So then the question comes, what's the root of the righteous? And in Proverbs 12.3, which we covered a little while back, it says that the root of the righteous will not falter. And we explained that the root of the righteous is their knowledge of Torah. While their good deeds may be fruit on the branches, the root of that fruit is the righteous person's knowledge, their, their knowledge of Torah and ideas. And that supplies the nutrients and the support for their good deeds. So even if the righteous person falters or is forcefully cut down, the roots still remain, and new growth can begin from those roots. So even if a, a righteous person, say, commits a sin or makes a mistake, their knowledge of Torah still remains and can still serve to support them. Uh, similarly, we read in Psalms 1 that a righteous person is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season. So the sustenance of the righteous, and again this could be physical food or the food necessary for growth in their relationship with Hashem, comes from their roots, which is their knowledge of Torah. So the verse seems to be talking about the source of sustenance of the wicked versus the righteous. The wicked seek after the prey of evildoers, and they get their sustenance from unlawful means, through robbery and through violence, while the righteous get their sustenance from their roots, which is their Torah knowledge and their wisdom and insight. Now, going back to what Rabbi Moskowitz said about the first half, where the wicked person uh, is involved in this fantasy about evil, the root of the righteous, he said, is based on reality and the search for reality. And uh, they're involved in removing all of the fantasies and that that process gives the righteous person all of his needs. So a similar type of, uh, of interpretation. Any questions on that verse? Okay, I'll take no response as a no. Um, but if you do have questions, by all means, just type it in and let me know. What is the end of the evil men? Well, based on our studies to date in Proverbs, we see that the evil man is operating not in accordance with reality. So he's trying to shortcut reality, uh, and uh, prey on others and get uh, fulfill his desires through uh, wickedness and violence. And you've mentioned what's the what's the end of the wicked person in this case? So the wicked person desires the prey of evildoers. So he's involved in trying to fulfill his needs by going after uh, people who are weak. Now. In the short run, he may succeed uh, if he works out plans to do it and he manages, for example, let's take a, a swindler, uh, someone who can defraud uh, people who are perhaps not very smart or don't have someone to uh, help them. He may be uh, successful in the, in the short run in managing to defraud them and get away, say, with someone else's money or whatever. But what happens is that the more that he does that, the more convinced he becomes that he can continue to do that. And of course, since he's operating outside of reality, he becomes more convinced that his way is the way that's going to lead to riches and meeting his needs and so forth. And so he doesn't see the mistakes that he's making along the way. Because remember, he's not looking at reality and looking at the true values he's looking at just fulfilling his immediate physical or emotional desires. So, 
uh, to take a simple case, a person, say, starts off by stealing a pack of gum from the store. And they get away with it. And the person says, oh, hey, I can do this. I don't need to, to uh, uh, you know, pay for things. And so the next time he goes in, he steals maybe a pack of gum and a candy bar. And he gets away with that. And then he steals uh, a pack of gum, a candy bar, and a loaf of bread. Um, and pretty soon then, he, you know, he keeps escalating because he is convincing himself that he can operate this way. And so what that does is it eventually, over time, destroys his thinking process. So he's no longer able to think in terms of reality, but he's thinking in terms of his own uh, megalomania, his own self-centered focus, and his delusion that he can take from others and there won't be any consequences. And generally speaking, sooner or later, he will make a mistake that will have consequences for him. He'll get caught, someone will catch him in the act of doing something, someone will figure out what he's doing, it will become known, and then he will get potentially huge consequences. I mean, uh, to take my, the analogy, um, uh, you know, to an extreme, so the person keeps stealing and keeps, you know, uh, increasing what he steals, and pretty soon he decides, well, I could really steal a lot if I could get to the cash register, but I'm going to have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, convince the, the proprietor to do that. So he goes in with a baseball bat or a knife or whatever and holds up the proprietor and steals all his money. Now he's really thinking, hey, this is good. Forget the candy bar. I got real money. And he keeps going and he keeps going. And pretty soon, potentially, he runs into a shopkeeper who is well-armed and, uh, you know, rather than letting him rob from the store, ends up taking him out and either he dies in the process or he is arrested and goes to jail. So that little starting with the pack of gum starts to wreck his thinking process for being able to see the true consequences of his behavior and ultimately will be his downfall. Okay. Does that make sense and am I answering your question? Okay. Any other questions on verse 12? In that case, let's move on to verse 13. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 13. And the verse says, In the sin of the lips lies an evil snare, but a righteous person comes out of trouble. Or one translation is, escapes travail. Same type of thing. In the sin of the lips lies an evil snare, but a righteous person comes out of trouble. So I'm going to ask you as always, what are the questions? What questions do we need to ask in order to understand what this verse is trying to teach us? In the sin of the lips lies an evil snare but a righteous person comes out of trouble. Any thoughts? Okay, good, Naomi, thank you. What, what are sinful lips? Yeah, what's the sin of the lips? And how does the snare come? What's the connection between one and the other? And, and how do the righteous escape travail? Exactly. Uh, how does that all work? Uh, and we'll have to define what a snare is, and I, overall we could ask, you know, what does the first half have to do with the second half? Because there doesn't seem to be a very clear contrast here. Uh, I mean, one's talking about the sin of the lips, and another's talking about a righteous person getting out of trouble. Um, so, Naomi, you've suggested maybe sin of the lips is speaking lies. Well, yes, that would be a part of that. Let me suggest a little broader definition. It would seem to me that a sin of the lips would have to mean all or some combination of saying something intentionally untrue or dishonest or deceitful 
or some type of gossip. Uh, those would be the, the major sins of the lips that come to mind. We could potentially also say that blasphemy is sin of the lips because that's also, uh, you know, I mean, it's also a form of an untrue statement, but we can keep that as a separate category. So, uh, and you mentioned Lashon Ra, absolutely. Uh, that's gossip and whoremongering. Um, I'm not sure that I have a good, clear definition of whoremongering, uh, but I'd have, that one I would have to look up. But Lashon Hara for sure. Um, essentially, I think saying something that's untrue or dishonest or deceitful or gossip or blasphemous uh, would be a sin of the lips. Now, what's a snare? A snare is something that traps you, or that traps a person or an animal. Uh, so an evil snare, it seems to me, would be something that traps you in evil. And you're right, untrue statements. Um, I believe we once pointed out that the great Jewish scholar Saji Gion defined evil as ignorance. So an evil snare would seem to be then something that will trap you in ignorance. So let's look at that for a minute. How does that work? Let's take gossip. Why do people gossip? Why do people uh, commit the sin of, of Leshon Hara? Any ideas? What causes people to want to gossip? Here's some juicy piece of information and I want to tell it over to everybody. And so I go out and do that, even though it's potentially embarrassing to someone else. What, what is driving me to do that? So I'll suggest that strong emotional desires drive people to gossip. The desire to put somebody else down, the desire to make myself look good at the expense of the other person, uh, the desire to somehow show off to other people uh, or make myself feel important by telling information about someone else, uh, those kinds of things. Um, so, all these desires are essentially emotionally driven. Um, and let me pause, you wrote, speaking unknown is gossip. I'm not sure what you're meaning there. Can you, if you can elaborate on that, that would help. But things like the desire to put somebody else down, the desire to show off, and the desire to make myself look good or be important at someone else's expense, those are all emotional desires, desires that are emotionally driven. Now, what happens when someone lets their emotional drives drive them, or their emotional desires? As we just discussed, they fail to see reality clearly, and we've talked about that in other classes. And if they fail to see reality clearly, they're bound to make mistakes. Now, the more then that someone indulges in the sin of the lips, in our case here, we're talking about gossip. The more that they reinforce that way of thinking and the farther that drives them from reality. So the more they do it, the more they get caught up in doing it, and the more they're caught up in their emotional desire that they're trying to fulfill by doing it. And so that tends to drive them farther and farther from reality. So I will submit to you that the evil snare is that by committing the sin of the lips, a person carries himself farther and farther from reality, and the drive to satisfy those emotional desires grows stronger and stronger. Because uh, when people, you know, go gossip, it's not like they go make a statement and then it like brings them satisfaction and they're done. 
It's like they just want to keep doing it more and more because essentially they're trying to fulfill an emotional desire that they're not going to be able to fulfill by, uh, by doing that. So they're just going to be uh, involved in it more and more and more. Uh, so it gets stronger and stronger and like a snare or a trap, it has you, it's got you. And it keeps pulling you further and further in to the evil that you're committing. So, you know, you're reinforcing it. So it's like you're, you're digging the hole that you're sinking into one shovel full at a time. And you just keep thinking, you know, gee, I'll, you know, I want to do more of this in hopes of fulfilling this desire. And you keep digging and digging and digging in further and further and further. So, and, and I'll, I'll suggest further that each of the other types of sins of the lips that we defined does the same thing. The person is driven emotionally. So if it were, uh, for example, uh, uh, making untrue statements or dishonest statements, lies, as you brought up, a uh, person does that because there's a particular emotional desire. They want to make people think of them differently or they want to cover up something that they did in their they're ashamed of or afraid to get caught at it or whatever. And so the more they do that, the more they get pulled into doing it. And so they get uh, pulled further and further into the evil snare that results in them not being able to see reality clearly, which results in eventually making mistakes, which could ultimately be fatal to the person. So that's the first half of the verse. In the sin of the lips lies an evil snare. Now, what about the second half? It says a righteous person comes out of trouble. Well, how does that happen? Well, we've talked about the righteous before. They're focused on the world of reality. The righteous person has trained himself to see reality clearly, including the consequences of various actions. Now, he's refined his skills so that he can analyze situations, recognize what's going on, recognize consequences, take action in accordance with what his mind sees. So he is able to see trouble coming, take action to stop it or get out of its way, and thereby escape. So his thinking process is what saves him from trouble or travail. He sees the reality of what's coming, he, he's been trained to look at long-term consequences, and he takes steps accordingly to protect himself. So he comes out of trouble, as the verse says. Okay, any questions so far? Just want to make sure we're all square before we go on. Okay. Now, we still have a question that we raised at the beginning that's somewhat troubling, which is, what does the first half have to do with the second half? The verse seems to be of the form, sinning with the lips pulls you into trouble, and a righteous person comes out of trouble. So, why wouldn't it simply say, Sinning with the lips pulls you into trouble, but not sinning with the lips will pull you out of trouble. I mean, that would have been the simple way to put it. Um, okay, and Naomi, you wrote, is the snare hit the person with sinful lips? Uh, not sure that I'm understanding, but the snare is basically that the sinful lips is pulling you into the world of unreality uh, and the world of being caught up more and more in your emotional desires which will cause you to make mistakes. Okay. In this case, um, is, uh, is the right, uh, you said or the righteous person, do you mean is the righteous person hit with the sin of the person in the first half? Not sure I understand. Okay. In this case, I don't think there is an action connection 
necessarily between the person in the first half and the person in the second half. Now it could be because in the uh, let's let's just go down that road for a minute. It's an, it's an interesting approach. If the uh, person in the first half starts speaking leshon uh, hara or dishonest things or lies to the person in the second half, the righteous person in the second half is going to uh, be smart enough to recognize, hmm, uh, something's going on here, and I have a suspicion about this person or what they're saying that I don't necessarily believe it. Um, for example, let's say a righteous person were about to enter into a business deal with someone who's lying to them. Well, a regular person might just accept the lie and move on and get burned in the business deal. But a righteous person will be careful enough to ask enough questions and do enough investigation to figure out, uh, is this person really trustworthy or not? Are they telling me lies? He would do, the righteous person would do their due diligence. So the righteous person, because of the way they think and the questions they would ask and the things that they would anticipate, and the investigation that they would do would save himself from trouble or come out of trouble that might have resulted from the uh, lies or uh, the dishonesty or the, the Lashon Hurrah that the person in the first half is saying. Okay? Am I, am I answering your question? Okay, good. Thank you. So, that, that's one approach. A second approach would be to, in terms of the first half and the second half, would be, well, why doesn't it just say sinning with the lips pulls you into trouble, but not sinning with the lips pulls you out of trouble? And I'll suggest that the reason is that that comparison wouldn't be true. It is true that sinning with the lips will pull you into an evil snare. It will pull you into trouble. But simply not sinning with the lips will not necessarily pull you out of trouble. To do that, a righteous person has to be actively engaged in the world of thought and the world of ideas and the world of reality. And what kind of a person does that? The righteous person. So, in other words, the sin of the lips will pull you into the evil snare, but simply not sinning with the lips is not sufficient to cause you to escape trouble. Trouble can still come. But the righteous, because they're actively involved in the world of reality and the world of analysis of consequences, escapes trouble because of that thinking process, not just because he doesn't sin with his lips. So, we could say it this way, it's not just the absence of bad action that saves you. It's the ability to think through a situation and see reality that can save you. Okay? So, uh, the, first, the first half is talking about uh, what the, uh, the, the person who's sinning with their lips is going to... Uh, have happened to them, their consequence. The second half is talking about the consequence of the righteous person. He manages to uh, escape trouble. And it could be uh, that King Solomon was referring to a specific interaction between those people. Uh, that the sin of the lips uh, lies in evil snare, uh, but a righteous person comes out of trouble. It is also possible, taking again your approach just a little further, that the evil snare could be the harm that the evil person is doing through the sin of the lips. In other words, uh, let's say they're saying dishonesty and lies to a person, again going back to the business deal example, uh, there's, there's an evil snare there, there's a trap waiting for the person. Uh, and yet the righteous person, because they are able to anticipate it and see that coming, is able to escape from trouble.
Okay, and let me now uh, introduce an idea that on this verse that Rabbi Moskowitz shared. He suggests uh, that the harm of speaking, uh, so it would be the sin of the lips, is where you hurt others. And the trap is that you're hurting others where people think that speech is not an action. People tend to think, oh, it's just words, you know, all I do, did was say a few things. That's not really an action. That's not really doing anything to hurt a person. But in fact, there can be great hurt and uh, pain that comes out of what people say. Now, the righteous person, when he knows uh, what the right thing is to say in a situation, he'll say it. But if he isn't 100% sure, he'll keep quiet. The righteous person knows when not to talk. And sometimes in certain situations, it's better not to say something than it is to, uh, you know, actually put an idea out there when it's not fully formed or whether you're not, when you're not totally sure uh, that it's the best thing to say. So, the righteous person knows the right thing to say, or he knows to be quiet. Uh, and that's a, an interpretation of Rabbi Moskowitz. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, I'll assume no answer means a no. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 14. And the verse reads, From the fruit of a man's mouth he will be sated with good, and the reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to him. From the fruit of a man's mouth he will be sated with good, and the reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to him. Well, that's just begging for questions. So what questions could we ask on that verse? From the fruit of a man's mouth he will be sated with good, and the reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to it. What do you think? What questions could we ask on that verse? Okay, you've mentioned this pretty straightforward statement. Um, let me suggest some questions. First of all, what's the fruit of a man's mouth? And then, how is he sated or satisfied with good from that fruit? From whatever it is the fruit is that comes out of his mouth. And then, what does it mean that the reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to him? kind of a funny word, returned. And again, I'd ask, as we did in the last verse, what does the first half have to do with the second half? Because it doesn't seem like there's an opposite or a contrast in this verse. Now, there isn't always. Some verses don't always have a contrast. But presumably, King Solomon put these two ideas together for some particular reason. So let's start at the beginning. From a fruit, from the fruit of a man's mouth, he will be saved with good. Uh, and Naomi, you've suggested speaking good that will bring goodness. Okay, good. Um, and I think you're exactly on the right track. I'll suggest that it's interesting that King Solomon says the word fruit. So I'm going to suggest that fruit is a metaphor. Or something else, because he talks about the fruit of a man's mouth. And I'll further suggest that it can't possibly mean just anything. In other words, it can't mean whatever comes out of a person's mouth, because that would suggest that a wicked person would be sated with good from what comes out of his mouth, and that certainly isn't true. So the key word here seems to be the word fruit. Why did Solomon choose that word? I mean, he could have said something that just referred to whatever comes out of one's mouth, but he didn't. 
And I'd like to suggest that the word fruit suggests something sweet and pleasant. Okay, and Naomi, you suggested righteous talking. And yes, I think that falls under the, the category of, of where I'm headed. The, the, the metaphor seems to be sweet and pleasant words, and they would have to be truly sweet and pleasant words, not fake ones, uh, not somebody just pretending. So what are truly sweet and pleasant words? And Naomi, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say righteous talking. Uh, words of truth, words that help other people. Uh, if someone is speaking words of truth that are designed to help others, then they would uh, generally be sweet and pleasant. And even if those words were designed to rebuke someone, the wise person will know how to, how to couch those words in a way such that the listener will be able to hear them. So how will the righteous person be sated with good from those sweet and pleasant words? Because I'll suggest he will know or she, that he's acting in accordance with the Creator's desire, which is that we act in accordance with reality and that we act in accordance with justice. So by thinking about how he can benefit other people and seeing the big picture of humanity and his real place in it, he's operating in accordance with God's system. So I'm suggesting that sated with good doesn't have to do with anything physical here. It's about the internal peace that this man feels, this type of person feels, because he is operating in accordance with reality. He knows he's doing the real good and that he's operating in accordance with truth and justice as the Creator set forth for us to do. So he, he gets it and so he will be sated with good by the fruit of his own mouth, the fact that he is speaking true ideas and righteous ideas and things that are of benefit and value to other people will be the fruit to him. He will be uh, sated with uh, good, regardless, I would suggest, of the physical things that go on around him. Okay, so if that's the first half, what about the second half? The second half says the reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to him. So what does that mean? Well, it could be interpreted that it's about getting rewarded for what you make. Literally, a man's handiwork. Uh, you know, a man goes to work and he gets a reward of a paycheck or uh, whatever he gets for the work that he does. Uh... And Naomi, you are, I think, uh, right on top of it, and I think that's where I'm headed. You've mentioned handiwork is good deeds. See, the, the, there's a, there are a couple of problems with um, doing it literally where a man's handiwork would be just like his paycheck. First, it seems extremely obvious. I mean, okay, a guy gets paid for his work, so why would I need King Solomon to tell me that? And second, why would he say that, the verse say, uh, it'll be returned to him. The reward of a man's handiwork will be returned to him. The use of the word returned is strange. Why not the reward of a man's handiwork will be given to him? Why would he use the word returned? You want to take a crack at that one before we go on? What's the meaning of, of the fact that he uses the word return? Any thoughts on that? So I'll suggest that the verse is talking about the handiwork of a righteous person and we're, we're connecting the second half with the first half. The righteous person is sated with good right now 
right in the present moment because of the fruit that comes out of his mouth, the ideas of reality that he is uh, speaking and sharing in order to help people see the truth. Okay? His handiwork, that's the, that's the fruit of his mouth, happens in the present. His handiwork is what he actually does in the physical world, and the righteous are involved in activities that spread Torah knowledge. They write books, they give classes, uh, and so forth. The reward of those activities is not always immediately obvious. When Maimonides wrote his great works, it's my understanding, uh, he didn't get great accolades uh, for some of those works uh, at least not right away. Certainly he didn't go on book tours or, you know, appearances on television or anything like that. And in fact, I understand in some cases he got resistance for his ideas. Yet ultimately, the reward returns to him. Uh, and this is an idea that I received from uh, Rabbi Moskowitz. Um, Maimonides' works have guided and influenced generations of people. So the reward of his handiwork, of his writing and his ideas, has returned to him. Similarly, with all of the sages who toiled to create works that would influence generations, there may not be any immediate reward, but they're engaged in activities that's producing the handiwork, their books and their messages, that will have multi-generational impact. So the reward returns to them. It comes back. And I would submit that this is true for any person who engages in truly righteous activities. The reward will ultimately return to the individual because we know that God is just. And importantly, these people don't participate in these activities for the reward per se. In other words, they're involved in it because it is the path of learning the path of truth. Not, well, I'll do this because, gee, God's going to give me cookies, um, you know, or brownie points or something like that. They're involved in the world of ideas for the sake of being involved in the world of ideas and learning and wanting to know more about Hashem uh, and be closer to Him. So the verse is talking about the rewards of the righteous, that they'll be sated with good because of the fruit of their mouth, and the reward of their handiwork, their righteous activities, will eventually return to them. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay. I think we have time for one more. So let's go on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. And that verse reads, The way of a fool is just in his eyes, but the wise man listens to counsel. The way of a fool is just in his eyes, but the wise man listens to counsel. So what do you think the questions are? What questions would we ask on that verse? The way of a fool is just in his eyes, but the wise man listens to counsel. Any thoughts? So let me suggest some questions. First of all, what's the way of a fool? And then, what does it mean when it says that it's just in his eyes? The way of a fool is just in his eyes. And why does the wise man listen to counsel? Says the wise man listens to counsel. Why is that? And then, what's the connection between the two halves of the verse? Okay, and you've written, uh, what is the way that uh, the foolish thinks right, and... Okay, good, and uh, why is it just in his eyes? Okay, 
and how the council will help the righteous. Excellent, excellent questions. Good. And you've also asked, what's the relationship between wise and foolish? Very good. So I'll suggest that a fool, the way of a fool, is to act on his emotions. And then he rationalizes that. So he knows what he wants, and he's uh, trying to fulfill his emotional desires, and then he takes action on the basis of that. And he rationalizes it. It looks just fine to him. You know, he's... Uh, uh, decides that even though it's um, harvest time or even though it's time to plant a field, um, he decides that he feels like taking a nap. And he can fully justify taking a nap. Oh, you know, I've had such a hard morning, I really need to take the afternoon off. So he operates on the basis of, emo of his emotions and when it says it's just in his eyes, in other words, he's rationalized in his own mind that he's doing the proper thing. He doesn't see the true consequences uh, of what he's doing. He just justifies himself. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out, he said, the fool has only one possibility, only one possible course of action, and it's his own. By contrast, the wise man listens to counsel. Now, very interesting to notice the use of the verb listens. Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out, it doesn't say that the wise man takes the advice of counsel, but he listens to it. So the wise man recognizes that he may not see every viewpoint in a situation, so he will go out and solicit counsel from people who he trusts to get their viewpoint on a situation. And he'll listen to that and take all of that in and then decide what action to do. So after he listens to the advice, he makes his own decision, but he realizes that there are multiple possibilities, multiple viewpoints, and he's factored all of those into account in making that decision. So the verse uh, is contrasting the fool, who does what he wants and rationalizes it in his own eyes, with the wise man who listens to counsel from a multitude of viewpoints and then makes his own decision about uh, what he believes to be the best uh, approach, taking into account all of those various possibilities that his counselors shared with him. Okay, does that make sense? And are there any questions on this verse? Okay, good. Well, in that case, we will stop for the evening. So, thank you for being with us.